podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Friday. It is the 7th of July. Hope you're all well. Hope you all have nice plans for the weekend. I would have, but it just keeps raining here. We're going to continue our walk down memory lane because I am apparently a nostalgia merchant. That's what I've been tagged as by some child on Twitter who took offence to me pointing out that both Stephen Gerrard and Michael Ballack have better catalogues of long-range goals than Kevin De Bruyne. That's not nostalgia, that's just a simple fact. It's also a fact that Michael Ballack, from a technical point of view, is the most consistent striker of a ball that I think the game's ever seen off both feet. Michael Ballack's consistency in how he struck the ball, the power he would generate is unmatched off either foot. Simply sensational. But because he spent the majority of his career in the Bundesliga and only came to the Premier League at 30-31, people remember him for the Chelsea time when he wasn't allowed to play as far forward as he had at Bayern and at Bayer Leverkusen because of Frank Lampard. So he became more of a playmaker. Still got goals, but didn't play in the areas he had before and didn't get as many of them and didn't shoot as much because Lampard was the one taking the long shots. Anyway, let's continue with the nostalgia. <clears throat> the 95-96 Premier League team, Premier League season, I should say, which was the first season with 20 teams, which is how we know the league now. As I mentioned, 
on the last show, there was four teams relegated and only two teams promoted. Middlesbrough and Bolton coming back up into the top flight after sizable gaps for both. So your Premier League teams, Arsenal, Aston Villa, Blackburn Rovers, Bolton, Chelsea, Coventry, Everton, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Middlesbrough, Newcastle, Nottingham Forest, QPR, Sheffield Wednesday, Southampton, Tottenham, West Ham and Wimbledon. We have two new stadiums coming into the division then. Burnden Park, which no longer exists, has been replaced by what was the Reebok Stadium. I don't actually know what Burnley or what Bolton Stadium is now. And the Riverside Stadium, and this was the opening of the Riverside Stadium. So Middlesbrough had played at Ayrson Park for 100 years and had opened a new modern but kind of I want to describe this politely. I don't I don't want this to sound disrespectful. But Middlesbrough Stadium was was copied by a number of other clubs. The same type of stadium. It was like in America in the 70s, a lot of stadiums got built that were known as cookie cutter stadiums. They were those circular stadiums and a lot of them built off the same plans and the same idea. Those stadiums were built so that you could have baseball and American football in the one stadium. These were only football stadiums, but they were built off pretty much exactly the same plans. Derby County would build Pride Park off very, very similar plans. And I'm fairly certain the Reebok was built off similar plans as well. Anyway, it was a nice stadium. Borough were new back up into the division. They were exciting because they were spending money. They were managed by Brian Robson. So there was a lot of intrigue over what they'd be like because Brian Robson had been such a great player. Uh, In terms of managers, it's still very much the British focus with just Joe Kinnear as a non-British person. Uh, Bruce Rioch was at Arsenal. Alex Ferguson was at Manchester United. And every other club was managed by an English manager. All of the captains, other than Andy Townsend of Aston Villa, were British. Gary McAllister was captain of Leeds, Ian Rush at Liverpool, and Vinnie Jones at Wimbledon. Now, Vinnie Jones was English, but played for Wales. All the rest were English. In terms of kits, Arsenal still had Nike. Aston Villa had Reba, so they're new. Uh, Asics had Blackburn. They had Leeds, and that was it. We, so we were seeing Asics kind of diminish in terms of the number of teams they have. Uh, Reebok also had Bolton, which is how the agreement came up on the stadium uh, when the new stadium was built. Umbro then had um, Chelsea, Everton, both Manchester clubs and Nottingham Forest. Pony had Coventry, Southampton, Tottenham and West Ham. Adidas had Liverpool, and now they added Newcastle. Iria were a new manufacturer for us, uh, an Italian sports manufacturer. They made Middlesbrough's kits. We had the introduction of Puma. They were spon- they were making kits for Sheffield Wednesday. And then two that I don't remember. One is a company called View From, who were making kits for QPR. And one called Core, making the kits for Wimbledon. Aston Villa changed sponsors. They were sponsored by AST Research, um, a personal computer manufacturer. Arsenal still at JVC. Uh, CIS, an insurance company, took over with Blackburn. Bolton had Reebok. So Reebok is front of shirt and kit manufacturer, obviously a package deal. Uh, Chelsea still had Coors, Coventry had Peugeot. Everton moved to Danke. Don't know what they did. Uh, Leeds had Thistle Hotels, Liverpool at Carlsberg, City had Brother United at Sharp. 
Middlesbrough had Selnet. And if I'm not mistaken, Middlesbrough's owner was like a major shareholder in Selnet or something like that. Uh, Newcastle had Newcastle Brown Ale. Forrest still had Labatt's, QPR at Compaq. Sanderson now sponsored Sheffield Wednesday and Southampton, taking over from Dimplex as the Southampton sponsor. Spurs had Hewlett-Packard. West Ham still had Dagenham Motors. And Wimbledon still had Elonex. We'll go through the transfers that the Premier League clubs did this season. And um, I think, again, we'll see some pretty big names. So, again, this is not an alphabetical order. It's just in the order it is in front of me. So bear with me on this. Aston Villa signed Mark Draper, Gareth Southgate, and Savo Milosevic. QPR signed Mark Haitley, Simon Osborne, and Ned Zelich. Ned Zelich, who, when Ray Wilkins signed him, he described him as being as versatile as an egg and didn't go any further on that one. That's just what he said about him. Um, I don't know why I remember that, but I just remember it. Uh, they signed Paul Murray from uh, Carlisle as well. Sheffield Wednesday, Darko Kovacevic, who would go on to be really well known for his spell at Real Sociedad. Dejan Stefanovic, those two arrived for big money from Red Star Belgrade. John Newsom, Mark DeGress, who I don't remember, was a Belgian forward. Mark Penbridge was a good player. Steve Nickel in on a free bit of experience. And Reggie Blinker, who was a really fun left winger with dreadlocks, who flattered to deceive, to be nice. Uh, Wimbledon signed Andy Pearce, Paul Heald, Danny Hodges, Mark Thompson, John Cheesewright and Simon Thompson, and I don't remember any of them bar Andy Pierce and Paul Heald. Uh, Coventry City, Liam Daish, Paul Telfer, Richard Shaw, one of many signings that they would make from Crystal Palace under Big Ron. Uh, another one was John Salako. Sam Shilton, who I think might be Peter Shilton's son. I could be wrong about that, but I think he is. Isaias, who was a Brazilian winger that I don't remember. Uh, Paul Williams, decent player. Neil Lamptey. Now, a lot of people won't remember Neil Lamptey. Neil Lamptey was, I, I don't know if Freddie Adu will be one that people will remember, but there's a Ghanaian connection there. Neil Lamptey, when he joined Villa, from the Anderlecht Academy was like one of the most highly thought of young players in Europe. And for whatever reason, it just never worked out. He ended up having a journeyman career. He had a long career, but it never really worked out the way it should have. He had immense amounts of ability and went all over the world. Like Anderlecht alone at PSV, and he was brilliant for both clubs. Um, Villa signed him. Then he went to Coventry. Spent a year there. Went to Venezia. Then he went to Boca Juniors. Then he went to Union Santa Fe on loan. Then he went to a team in Turkey that I'm not going to try and pronounce. Then he went to Portugal to play for Unai Lira. Then he went to Gruter Furt in Germany. Shandong Lunen in China. Al Nazir Dubai. Asante Kotoko, who are based in Ghana, and Jomo Cosmos, who are based in South Africa, I think. Um, yeah, just one of those super talented players that just never worked out. Ron Atkinson was absolutely in love with him, signed him for Villa. Then when he got sacked, and went to Coventry, brought him to Coventry, but it just never worked out. Um, Manchester United signed Tony Cotton. This was a season of big change at United. They sold Ince, they sold Kinchelskis, they sold Hughes with the plan of we're replacing them with young players. We have young players here that we're going to give opportunities to. Paul Scholes, David Beckham, Nicky Butt, the Nevilles, and so on and so forth. Um, They didn't bring in anybody. 
Like imagine, imagine City now, this season. They've sold Gundigan's or they've let Gundigan go, so that's one. Now imagine they let Bernardo go, and then imagine they let Julian Alvarez go. Not their main strikers, because Hughes at that point was a backup behind Cantona and Cole, but he's still an important player for them. It's still only 31. But imagine they let those players go and didn't bring in anybody. That's the equivalent of what this was. And that would be seen as a shock. Uh, Newcastle signed Les Ferdinand. Then they signed... Oh, I've, I've missed one for United that I should point out. William Prunier arrived at United, I think, on a trial. Because back then, this used to happen where players in like their mid to late 20s would come on trial for a club before the club decided to make a move. So I think... If I'm not mistaken, United signed him on trial. He played in a trial game and impressed, or played in a game as a trialist and impressed. And then I think he played against, I want to say it was Spurs around Christmas time. And United got absolutely pumped and he was shocking. And they just cancelled it and sent him away after that. Um, Newcastle signed Les Ferdinand, Warren Barton, David Ginola, Shaka Hishlop, Darren Huckerby, a very young Darren Huckerby. And then in the January, they signed Tino Espria and David Batty. They'd sold Rule Fox, who had been so important to them, was a surprise when they sold him, but they wanted to give Keith Gillespie his minutes. Uh, Nottingham Forest signed Chris Barrett-Williams, Richard Irvine, and that's about it. They sold Stan Collymore. Middlesbrough, newly promoted, First signed Nicky Barnby, who was England international, very highly regarded, one of the one of the best players at Spurs, and Middlesbrough new to the division spent five point seven five million, I think, to bring him in. Then shortly afterwards, they signed Juninho, who so that summer of ninety five, there was a tournament played at Wembley basically like a Confederations Cup. And this really exciting Brazil team emerged with him and Edmundo and a few others. And I think Roberto Carlos was part of that team. I almost certainly was. I think Danielson was part of that team. But Janinho was seen as like this incredible talent. And somehow, and I still to this day have no idea how, somehow Middlesbrough managed to land him. They also signed Branca, very experienced Brazilian left-back who'd been, I think, part of the 94 World Cup squad, had been at Genoa for years, scored a worldie against Liverpool for Genoa in a UEFA Cup game in the 90s. Had gone back to Brazil and then Middlesbrough bought him in. Um, yeah, Chelsea signed Mark Hughes. They signed Rude Hullet on a free, which was very exciting at the time because he was a he was a superstar. They brought in Dan Petrescu from Sheffield Wednesday, who was already established himself after, like, I think, was he there two seasons at Wednesday as one of the better right-backs in the league. They signed Terry Phelan from Man City. Then we had uh, Arsenal signed Dennis Burkamp and David Platt. So Burkamp was a a superstar and Platt was an England regular and a big-time goal-scoring midfielder. And Arsenal thought they were getting a guy that would get them 15 to 20 goals a season. Platt was 29. His game didn't age all that well. He had been a tremendous player for Villa and when he was in Italy. But unfortunately, uh, he was tailing off when Arsenal got him. Um, what else have we got? Leeds made the Tony Yeboah deal permanent. They signed Richard Jobson, Paul Beasley and Lee Chapman on loan. Um, da, 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 da. West Ham signed Slavin Bilic. They signed Ili Dimitrescu from Spurs. They signed Marco Bugers, who uh, nearly snapped, I think, Gary Neville's leg in a game. Turned out to be absolutely useless. And then disappeared and was found a couple of years later living in a caravan. Um, They signed Ian Dowie. They signed Steve Jones. Peter Shilton, aged 46, Still knocking about, brought into West Ham. Uh, they signed Robbie Slater, John Harks. 
this is where Harry Redknapp got his wheeler dealer type of thing. They signed a kid called Danny, Portuguese kid. Might be the most handsome footballer of all time. And Ian Dowie was quoted as saying, he looks just like me. Um, Bolton signed Jerry Taggart, Sasa Kirkic, who was really good. Really good for them. Not so much when he went to Villa, but really good for them. Uh, Nathan Blake, who was a really good striker. Steve McInesby, I don't remember a whole lot of. Scott Sellers was a good player. Andy Todd, Gavin Ward, squad players mostly. Um, but they did lose McAteer. Uh, Manchester City signed Georgie Kinkladze, who remains one of the most entertaining players that has ever played in the Premier League. And it was such a success that they went back to his club, Dinamo Tbilisi, in the January and signed Mikhail Kavalashvili. And Kinkladze publicly said, this guy's better than me. And it turned out that he wasn't. Uh, they signed Nigel Clough, Kit Simons, uh, Jerry Creaney, Martin Phillips, Ike Immel, who was a very, very experienced goalkeeper. Um, but was kind of on the downturn at that point at 34. Scott Hiley. Southampton signed Alan Nielsen and Barry Venison. Sorry, Barry Venison. Also signed Mark Walters on a free. Blackburn signed Gary Flickcroft from Man City to replace Batty. Chris Coleman from Crystal Palace. Really, really good defender. In his prime, he was very, very good. And him and Hendry was seen as a logical pairing. Uh, Maddie Holmes, Graham Fenton, Gary Croft, Nicholas Goodmanson, Lars Bohinen, who'd been excellent for Forrest. Didn't quite work out there. Billy McKinley arrived as well. Spurs signed Chris Armstrong from Crystal Palace, Rule Fox from Newcastle, Andy Sinton, from Sheffield Wednesday, he was a decent player. Uh, Clive Wilson and a bunch of squad players. But they sold Barnby, Dimitrescu, Darren Kasky, who was actually decent. And they sold Klinsman to Bayern. He kind of forced his way out of the club. And they sold Jika Popescu, which upset me greatly because he was. I, I loved watching Jika Popescu play for anybody. But having him in England meant he was easier to watch. Liverpool signed Stan Collymore for a record fee and Jason McAteer, who'd had an excellent season with Bolton. Uh, they sold Nigel Clough. That was about it. Uh, Andre Kinchelskis went to Everton, as did Gary Speed and Craig Short. Everton had a good window that year. They were three good players. And that's what we have. So, first game of the season. The most memorable thing that has kind of held through time from this specific season was a comment made on Match of the Day. So Manchester United went to Villa Park first day of the season, got comprehensively outplayed and beaten 3-1. And Alan Hansen said, you'll never win anything with kids. Now, he has been mocked endlessly for that comment ever since, but he wasn't wrong. Because, yes, United had young players in that team. Ryan Giggs played uh, 33 league games. Gary Neville played 31. Nicky Butt played 32. Paul Scholes played 26. Not all these are starts, by the way, but these are how many they played. Um, Beckham played 33. Phil Neville played 24. But also in that team, you had Dennis Irwin, Steve Bruce, Gary Pallister, Eric Cantona, Brian McClare, Andy Cole, and Roy Keane. So it wasn't that they won it with kids. The kids played a big part, but they had great senior players. They had a spine of senior players that was able to, especially the two up front and the two at centre-back and the guy in goal. Keane was mid-20s at this point. This was Keane at a just phenomenal level. But those two up front two at centre-back and fell in goal. They were all great players in their own rights. Cole is a great goal scorer. Bruce wasn't a great defender, but he was a he was a great captain and he was a good defender. He was reliable. Steve Bruce was rarely less than 7 out of 10. Now, he was rarely more than 7 out of 10, but you knew what you were getting with him and he would win everything in the air. 
He might be the most fearless centre-back I've ever seen. Do you ever have a look at his nose? Have a close look at his nose. I would estimate his nose was broken probably 14 or 15 times. I would say if you put your finger into his nose, it probably spreads. Because I'd imagine there's not a whole lot of bone or cartilage left. I'd say it's mostly mush. Um, But Pallister was a Rolls-Royce. Cantona was a genius. And Keane was, without question, the best midfielder in the league at this point. And there was nobody really to challenge him. Um, But yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing. That's the most memorable thing of that season, other than... Newcastle in this year. Newcastle were spectacular in this season. And a little bit like Arsenal in the season that we've just seen happen, they had an unbelievable run in the first half of the season. They went on an absolute tear. They only lost two games prior to Christmas. Southampton beat them and then Chelsea beat them. They only lost three games... By mid-February, United beat them as well. They only dropped points in six games. They were 12 points clear. They were absolutely rampant at times. They had Shaka Hislop in goal, Warren Barton right back, John Beresford left back, Darren Peacock and Steve Howie as the centre-backs with Philippe Albert in rotation. So very strong in defence. In midfield, you had Rob Lee, Lee Clark, you had Janola one wing, you had Gillespie the other, you had Steve Watson as a utility player that could play pretty much anywhere. And you had Beardsley and Ferdinand up front. And in the January, they brought in David Batty to shore things up because... The only knock on them was they were a little bit suspect against the counter-attack because they would commit so many numbers forward, but they weren't conceding a ton of goals. Prior to a 2-0 defeat to West Ham on the 21st of February, they had only conceded more than one goal in the game three times. They won one and drew one of those games. They'd scored in every single game. Bar one. No, sorry, bar two. But they were rampant. And they were playing incredible football. And the Batty signing made sense. What didn't make sense was the Espria signing. Tino Espria was one of the more talented players in world football at the time. He was also a lunatic, an absolute firecracker who was completely unpredictable from one game to the next. And he'd been excellent at Parma as part of a front three with Gianfranco Zola and Thomas Broly, and obviously both of whom came to the Premier League at different times as well, two wildly different levels of success. Zola had all the success. Brolin's career in England was a disaster and basically ruined his career as a whole. But Espria had been excellent for Parma. But he made no sense for Newcastle. Made absolutely no sense for Newcastle. Not at that time. In the summer, absolutely. Not at that time. The Beardsley-Ferdinand pairing were sensational. And it wasn't something that needed to be messed with. Now, the argument can be made, well, we didn't have a whole lot of depth behind them if one of them got injured. I mean, that's, that's fair enough. But you did have a young Darren Huckerby, who was a talented player. And you did have Paul Kitson, who was a good player. So you did have some depth. You just chose not to use them. But that Espria signing completely ruined the balance of the team. And they collapsed. Having lost three games 
by the 21st of February, they then went on to lose five games from the next eight. And United, having been 12 points behind, went on a run where they looked untouchable, caught them, overtook them, and went on and won the league title. It's one of the most spectacular bottle jobs we've ever seen. But not only did Newcastle's, like, not only did they start losing games, they, they stopped scoring, they started conceding more. And from 12 points clear, I think United had a game in hand, so it was maybe a nine-point lead, really. But it could have been a full 12. You'd have to check. They ended up finishing four points behind them. Now, United were tremendous that year. There's no question United were absolutely excellent that year. But Newcastle were so much fun. Like, you would watch Newcastle play anybody at that point. They were the great entertainers. But they it was weird. They had this reputation of, oh, they don't defend. But you go and you look at the results. 3-0, 3-1, 2-0, 1-0. They lost 1-0 then. 3 1, 2-0, 3-1, 3-2 victory, 6-1, 1-1, 2-1, 1-0, 1-1, 2-1, 3-3, a draw, and a 1-0 defeat to Chelsea. Like, how is that not good? That's good defensive work. It's it football is not about keeping clean sheets. Like David De Gea, for example, this past season won the Golden Gloves because he kept the most clean sheets in the division, but he didn't have the lowest number of goals conceded in the season in the season Nick Pope did well at Nick Pope and Ederson like for them that's more impressive you know average goals conceded per game is what we should be basing things like how do we rate a defense on not on clean sheets because clean sheets are a little bit of a fluke I remember Simon Mignolet being one of the top clean sheet keepers in the Premier League one season Liverpool while Liverpool conceded like 40 odd goals and were dreadful defensively so you never really base it on clean sheets. Clean sheets are great from a confidence point of view, obviously. But you're better off looking at how many goals per game does a team average across the course of a season. And then you can get a better handle on whether they're a good defensive side or not. But Newcastle were a lot better defensively than people gave them credit for. After that Chelsea defeat, the 1-0 9th of December, they beat, beat Everton 1-0. They beat Forest 3-1. They lost 2-0 to United. They beat Newcastle. Uh, they, sorry, they beat Arsenal 2-0. They beat Coventry 1-0. They won 2-1, 2-0, and 2-1 in the next three games. And then it all came crumbling down around them. And the game that swung it was March 4th, 1996. Manchester United went to St. James's. Newcastle battered them. But Eric Cantona scored the only goal of the game with a volley that he hit down into the ground and the spin on it beat the keeper. It's a shame for Newcastle. They've had, I think they've had two other second place finishes in the Premier League, but they've never gotten as close as that to winning the title. Now, obviously they've got this new exciting era for themselves with all the money, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll wait and we'll see if any of that really pays off. If they, if they win a title, if the PIF do continue to spend big money or if more of the money goes back into their own league back home. Uh, So United win the title, 82 points, four clear of Newcastle. Liverpool finished third. Uh, Aston Villa finished fourth. Arsenal finished fifth. Everton sixth. Good season for the Ev. Blackburn 7th, Blackburn 7th having won the title the year before. Very, very disappointing. A lot of injuries that year. Spurs 8th, then Forest, West Ham, Chelsea, Middlesbrough, Leeds, Wimbledon, Sheffield Wednesday, Coventry, Southampton, Manchester City, QPR and Bolton. So Bolton straight back down. QPR down the sale of Les Ferdinand just sort of scuppered them and Man City going down and this was great drama last day of the season 
you had City, Southampton, Coventry and Sheffield Wednesday and technically Wimbledon, who all could have gone down. City's goal difference made them the likelihood to go down and that's how it played out. City went down on goal difference. Alan Shearer scored 31 goals. Robbie Fowler got 28. Les Ferdinand had 25. Dwight York had 17. Teddy Sheringham had 16. Armstrong, Kinchelskis and Ian Wright all had 15. Cantona, Collymore and Dion Dublin all had 14. Steve McManaman had 15 assists. Darren Anderton had 11. John Barnes, Cantona, Ian Wone and Dwight York all had 10. Beardsley, Giggs, Newell and Ripley all had nine. Just think of that Liverpool attack for a quick second. Fowler scores 28. Collymore scores 28. They also had Ian Rush in the rotation. McManaman is playing behind them. He leads the league in assists with 15. And John Barnes sitting in midfield and he's got 10. That's pretty spectacular. Our hat-tricks that year, Letissier, Robbie Fowler scored four in a 5-2 win over Bolton. I was at that game. Alan Shearer, Tony Yeboah, Les Ferdinand, Gary McAllister. I wonder how many of them were penalties. Uh, two more for Shearer. Dion Dublin, uh, Savo Milosevic, who by that point in December had already been nicknamed Misilotovic, Miflopovic, and a bunch of other derogatory terms because he did miss an awful lot of sitters. He was clearly a very talented player, but he just seemed to lack confidence in front of the goal. Uh, then Fowler with another against Arsenal was was the quickest hat-trick in Premier League history. Uh, Alan Shearer with his fourth hat-trick of the year. Gavin Peacock. Alan Shearer with his fifth hat-trick of the year. Mark Hughes and Andre Kinchelskis. Manager of the month. Keegan won it in August and September. Frank Clark won it in October. Alan Ball in November, Roy Evans in December and January, Alex Ferguson in February and March, and Dave Merrington won it in April. Ferguson was manager of the year. Player of the month, Janola in August, Yeboa in September, Trevor Sinclair in October, Rob Lee in November, Robbie Fowler in December, Collymore and Fowler shared it in January. Dwight York in February, Cantona in March, and Kinchelskis in April. Les Ferdinand was the PFA Players Player of the Year. Robbie Fowler was the Young Player of the Year. And Eric Cantona was voted Football Writers Player of the Year. And I can only think it's because this was the season <clears throat> where he came back, isn't it? After he'd leapt into the stands and kicked the fella, which was a big contributing factor in United not winning the league the season before. He came back this year in the October in a game at home to Liverpool, uh, was wrongly awarded a penalty after Ryan Giggs dived, and uh, United got a 2-2 draw where Robbie Fowler scored two absolute sensa- absolutely sensational goals. Um, your PFA team of the year, David James... Probably not deserved, in truth. Uh, Gary Neville, a right-back. Alan Wright of Aston Villa, a left-back. Tony Adams and Ugo Ekiog as the two centre-backs. And Ugo Ekiog passed away in 2017 after suffering a heart attack while working as a coach at Spurs uh, training ground. Then he 44. And I don't think he's probably re- properly recognised for how good he was. Ugo Ekiog was a tremendous centre-back. Came through the West Brom Academy, spent most of his career at Villa, had a really good run at Borough, alone at Leeds, then went to Rangers, had a good season at Sheffield United and then finished off playing uh, for Wembley when Wembley got a bunch of players to come out of retirement. Four caps for England, he deserved an awful lot more. Ugo Ekiog was very, very good. Very, very good. Um, Steve Stone on the right side of the midfield for the team of the year Rob Lee and Ruud Hullett in the middle and Davis Ginola on the left Steve Stone came out of seemingly nowhere 
to have this unbelievable run. He'd had like, I think, two or three very serious knee injuries earlier in his career. Finally managed to stay fit, put together this unreal season, ended up going to the Euros after this season as an important player for England. And then I think just continued to get hurt and was never really the same. Uh, Les Ferdinand and Alan Shearer up front. Um, Cantona not being named in the team of the year was quite controversial that year. I'm not really sure what the logic was, but I mean, you, you would have had to leave out one of the midfielders. The obvious one to leave out probably would have been Ruud Hullet because Stone, Rob Lee and Janola, I think were all nailed on to go into the team of the year that year. Um, <clears throat> we'll do the FA Cup and the League Cup. FA Cup, heartbreaking final. Manchester United won Liverpool nil. United secure the double. Eric Cantona scores in the 85th minute after David James flaps. Liverpool, in my memory, and I have watched this game a couple of times since, but not recently, Liverpool were the better team on the day. But Liverpool did deserve to lose, and I'll tell you exactly why they deserved to lose. They deserved to lose because they turned up wearing them stupid white suits, and they looked to show. <laughs> so they deserved to lose. Uh, Liverpool's team on the day, James in goal, Scales, Wright and Bab as the back three, which was, to be fair, quite good. McAteer, Redknapp, Barnes and Rob Jones strung across the middle. McManaman behind Fowler and Collymore. Collymore went off on 74 for Ian Rush. Jones went off on 86 for for Michael Thomas. Tony Warner was the third sub that Liverpool had that day. United had Peter Schmeichel in goal. Dennis Irwin played right back. Pallister and May, David May, were centre-back. Um, Steve Bruce was was missing, which should have been advantage Liverpool, but turned out not to be. <clears throat> um, Phil Neville, left-back. Beckham, Keane, Butt and Giggs across the middle of the park. Cantona and Cole up front. Uh, Scholes came on on 64 for, Cole, for Andy Cole. And then Gary Neville came on on 90 for David Beckham. United's third sub that day was Lee Sharp, and I don't think I've ever realised that. United did not have a subkeeper. So if Peter Schmeichel had gotten injured, they were they were screwed. Uh, but it didn't happen, and they won the game, and they won the double, and congrats to them for that. Uh, the League Cup. So Aston Villa beat Leeds United 3-0 in the final. Savo Milosevic, Ian Taylor, and Dwight York with the goals. This was a really, really good Villa team. Like a really good Villa team. Mark Bosnich in goal. A back three of Southgate, Paul McGrath and Ekiog. That was ex- excellent. Gary Charles and Alan Wright as wing backs. Not great players, but good, solid players. Ian Taylor and Mark Draper in midfield with Andy Townsend. I really like that midfield. Ian- Mark Draper was really good. And then up front, you had Milosevic and Dwight York. On the bench of them that day, Michael Oates, Steve Staunton and Tommy Johnson, none of whom came on. The Leeds team then was John Lukic in goal. Another back three. A lot of teams playing a back three at this point. Lucas Radley, David Weatherall and John Pemberton as the centre-backs. Gary Kelly at right back. Gary Speed at left back. Carlton Palmer, Mark Ford and Gary McAllister in midfield. And Andy Gray and Tony Yeboa up front. Um, Nigel Worthington on the bench, Brian Dean on the bench, and Thomas Brolin, who I mentioned earlier, also on the bench. Uh, Brolin came on for Radaby as they chased the game 2-0 down. Brian Dean had come on for Mark Ford at half-time in what was a very attacking move. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much that. Uh, managerial sackings, I suppose we should go over as well. Uh, there was a few this season. Um, so City had sacked Brian Horton at the end of the previous season. He was replaced by Alan Ball. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday had sacked Trevor Francis. He'd been replaced by David Pleat. Arsenal had appointed Bruce Riuk. Bruce Riuk had been replaced at Bolton by... Roy McFarland and Colin Todd as um, joint managers. Kenny Dalglish had retired as manager of 
Blackburn, he'd been replaced by Ray Harford, who'd been his assistant. Alan Ball obviously left Southampton to go to to go to City. He was replaced by Dave Merrington. And the only sacking during the season, Roy McFarland was sacked by Bolton, but Colin Todd wasn't, and he just became the manager. So in truth, everybody who started the season as a manager with, with a certain manager ended with that same manager. The only change made was Bolton decided we don't need the two of them. We'll get rid of one and we'll have the other. Very strange. Very, very strange. Right. That'll do us on that. Uh, we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we will do the news and the gossip. And I think that will be us. So I will see you all in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, Andre Onana, Manchester United are hoping to complete a deal for the Inter Milan goalkeeper. And it looks like Inter have been very smart here. They've lined up Anatoly Trubin, who, if you remember yesterday, I said United should sign as their long-term keeper of the future. It looks like Inter's plan is to sell Onana for about £50 and buy Trubin for about 15 million. Now, if Inter can take that other 35 million and turn it into, let's say, Giorgio Scalvini, Inter would come out way ahead in that deal. Way ahead. I really like the addition of Fratesi who's coming. If they get Trubin and they could land Scalvini, I think Inter would be putting together a really good team when you consider they still have, obviously, Barella. They'd still have Latura Martinez. There's a lot more work needed, but, you know, with Bastoni there as well, you could have Bastoni and Scalvini as two-thirds of your defence. It would be a formidable team that they'd be starting to put together. Bayer Leverkusen have completed the signing of Granite Jacket. They've overpaid for him. $21.4 million for Granite Jacket is too much for a fellow who's almost 31 and had a year left on his deal. I don't like the deal for Leverkusen. I don't like the fit at Leverkusen. I don't like Granite Jacket as a player. Seven years at Arsenal, he had one good season. One good season, this past season. That's it. Arsenal have done well to get that price. Uh, Cesar Azpilicueta has ended his 11-year spell at Chelsea and he has moved on to Atletico Madrid on a two-year contract. I like that move more for him than I did the Inter Milan move. I also like it more for Inter that they didn't get him. Excuse me, because he would not have been a good fit there. Um, won a lot of Chelsea. Won two league titles, an FA Cup, a League Cup, a Champions League, and two Europa Leagues. Also won a Euro- UEFA Super Cup and a World Club Cup. Real Madrid have signed 18-year-old Turkish playmaker Arda Guler from Fenerbahce. Six-year contract. Uh, believed to be a fee of about 15 million and his father got about the same out of the deal as well which is always funny to me um, Mickey Van de Veen a Cruyffian talent, a fighter and set for the Premier League it's a decent article there by Alex Bicet on the BBC website which you should check out Robin Cock has joined Eintracht Frankfurt on loan after Leeds were relegated um they decided, obviously, didn't want to pay his wages in the championship. So on he goes to Eintracht Frankfurt. Into the gossip. Manchester United are lining up a £50 million move for Atalanta and Denmark striker Rasmus Hoysland. I believe they've been told the price is considerably higher, but look, it is what it is. United continue to do due diligence on goalkeepers, including Netherlands international Justin Bijlow and Spaniard David Raya. I think I'd rather sign Raya if I could get him for £25 million than Onana for 50 personally. Eric Ten Hag is looking to offload Alex Tellez, Eric Bailly, Brandon Williams, Harry Maguire and Scott McTominay to balance the books at United. West Ham are interested in McTominay. That would be a bad signing. But Moyes is also tracking Amadou Onana, who he tried to sign last summer, and I think that's who he will go big for this summer once the Rice deal has been signed and sealed. 
I think he'll go big for Onana, which I think is a clever move. Chelsea will have to stump up more than 100 million for Moises Caicedo. And that's fair because he's better than Rice. He's younger than Rice. He's more versatile than Rice. And he's got more upside than Rice. So Rice has set the price and Brighton should hold firm on that, to be fair. Um, Newcastle are preparing a surprise move for Leandro Bonucci. No, they're not. And if they were, he wouldn't go. Jurian Timber will undergo a medical at Arsenal on Friday with the Gunners confident of completing their deal for the 22-year-old Dutch international. Tottenham midfielder Ivan Perisic has told Ange Postacoglu he intends to terminate his contract. Um, I don't know that he can do that, can he? Does he have an option? I don't know. Maybe it's a player option for the second year. And apparently he wants to go and join Hadjik Split in his homeland, which is fair enough. And to be fair, Spurs would be better off getting rid of him as well because he's on big money, he doesn't fit. And he's clearly declined. Meanwhile, Atletico Madrid have approached Spurs over a move for Pierre-Emile Heusberg. Southampton believe they will receive their asking price of 50 million for Romeo Lavia. I don't think they will. That's all I'll say. I don't think they will. Uh, Crystal Palace's hopes of re-signing the talismanic Wolf Zaha have been dashed as the Ford considers offers from Lazio, Fenerbahce and Al Nazir. That doesn't mean they've been dashed at all. Fulham are close to agreeing a new deal with free agent Willian after the Brazilian Ford officially became a free agent at the end of last week. I saw a report today that they were going to pay him 100 grand a week. And then I saw those dickheads at Barstool mocking the, the wage and saying he was stealing a living. Now, I'm almost certain they're Arsenal fans, the, the, the two lads that run that account. Your club pays 100 grand a week to Reese Nelson. And a hundred grand a week to follow him Balag- to um, Eddie and Ketia. And William was really good for Fulham last year. So maybe hush, stop embarrassing yourselves. Um, want away Chelsea Ford Christian Pulisic, on, Pulisic is on the cusp, or Pulisic is on the cusp of a twenty million switch to AC Milan. Leicester are willing to sell Harvey Barnes for forty million to help fund a squad rebuild. William Saliba has signed a new contract that will keep him with Arsenal until 2027. West Ham are weighing up a move for Juventus midfielder Dennis Zakaria. Don't like that for them either. Hammers are also interested in Joe Polina and James Ward-Prowse. Joe Polina, I like the fit as a player, but the fee would be too high. Ward-Prowse would be an awful signing. Wolves are desperate to keep 26-year-old English centre-back Max Kilman after turning down a £30 million bid from Serie A Giants Napoli. Um, And rightly so. They've already made one mistake in selling Collins. They shouldn't compound it with this one either. Right, that's it. That's all I've got for the week, folks. I will speak to you all on Monday. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.